This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Chapter 13 New Testament Moral Judgments Endorse the Law Quote, the attempt made by some Christian teachers today to reject or circumscribe the authority of the Old Testament law will over and over again meet with embarrassment before the text of the New Testament. End quote. The Old Testament law of God gives definitive substance to many of the central themes of New Testament ethics, as we have illustrated before. When we ask what it means to follow the will of God or to be holy, as the New Testament requires, we find that the law of God defines these ethical themes. Likewise, the law of God is assumed in notions like kingdom righteousness or the golden rule. The law functions as a standard and a guide when we heed New Testament exhortations to attain the stature of Christ or demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. New Testament ethical themes quite often take for granted the validity of God's Old Testament commandments. The complete, continuous, and thus contemporary validity of the Old Testament law, which is assumed without challenge in many themes of New Testament ethics, is brought out explicitly in moral judgments which fill the pages of the New Testament. In particular circumstances, when some kind of moral evaluation, direction, or exhortation is called for, New Testament preachers and writers often show that they stand firmly on the Old Testament law in making their judgments. They treat and utilize the standing rules of ethics as found in the Old Testament as though these rules were meant for them to keep, even though these rules were given a great many years earlier, before the advent of Christ our Savior. Particular instances of ethical decision-making in the New Testament illustrate once again that the commandments of God found in the Old Testament have not been discarded, repudiated, or ignored as somehow no longer authoritative and valid. Use and Validity Imagine that you wake up some morning to an exasperating problem. The plumbing under the kitchen sink needs repair, and a pool of water sits on the floor. After you mop up the mess, you stop and take thought as to what should be done to solve your plumbing problem. You think about calling a plumber, but reject that plan as too expensive and perhaps unnecessary. Upon reflection, you come to believe that you might very well be able to repair the plumbing yourself, if only you had some good direction. Therefore, you conclude that you will go down to the public library this morning and check out a self-help book on kitchen plumbing. Add one more feature to this scenario, namely, that you are reasonably informed as to the operating procedures of a public library. That is, you realize that the library is not open all of the time, and that only those with library cards may have the privilege of checking out books. So then, let us go back to your decision to check out a self-help book on plumbing this morning. What does such a decision tell us about your current beliefs? Among other things, it tells us that you believe, rightly or wrongly, that the public library is open this morning, that you have a library card there, and that the library card is still valid. If you decided to use the library's self-help plumbing book this morning, but knew either that the library was closed, that you had no card, or that your card was expired, you would most likely be irrational or a crook. People do not normally plan to use things which are closed down. For example, the library, non-existent or expired. For example, your library card. 
Likewise, when you wait in line at the mobile oil gas station, fill your car's tank with gas, and then hand the attendant your credit card, you are expecting that the card is still valid. Whether you scrupulously check the expiration date on the credit card before submitting it for payment to the attendant or not, the very fact that you use the card reveals the assumed validity of that card. And the attendant's acceptance of that card shows that he too believes it to be a valid one. When something has expired or is no longer valid, we do not have the authority to use it. Dishonesty aside, an expired library card or invalid credit card is useless. On the other hand, the use of something indicates its validity. Rules Much of the same can be said regarding rules. Invalid or expired rules have lost their authority and as such are useless, except for purposes of historical illustration. A professor may draw laps from his class by reading some of the city ordinances which were on the books a century ago, but a policeman would be out of place in trying to enforce them. A rule which has been repealed, amended, or replaced is no longer authoritative and cannot be used as a rule any longer. Thus, if a rule is put to use, the assumption must be that it is, or is thought to be, a valid rule. When a football referee allows a touchdown to count which was accomplished by means of a forward pass, it is futile for the other team to complain against the pass on the grounds that the forward pass was once illegitimate in football. The old prohibition against the forward pass has been repealed, and football is now played by slightly different rules. When a baseball umpire does not allow a designated hitter to bat for the pitcher, it is evident that the umpire is taking National League rules to be valid instead of American League rules. The use of the particular rule instead of alternative rules demonstrates the current authority and validity of the particular rule. For this reason, a driver who is stopped by a highway patrolman for traveling 65 miles per hour will not avoid a ticket by appealing to the former law, which set the maximum speed at 65. The use of the 55 mile per hour speed law by the courts and the police establishes the validity of this law over against the older one. We do not use expired rules if we are informed and honest. Looking at library cards and credit cards, and reflecting on civil rules and sports rules, we have seen that the use of them assumes their validity. Invalid cards and rules are unauthoritative. We can now apply this reasonable insight to the practice of the New Testament speakers and writers. Like policemen and umpires, the inspired speakers and writers of the New Testament were called upon to make decisions on the basis of rules. They needed to draw moral judgments in particular situations. When that time came, which rules did they utilize? Did they, being infallibly informed in their utterances, ignore the moral rules, commandments, of the Old Testament as though they were expired, inapplicable, or invalid? What does the New Testament usage of the Old Testament law tell us about that law's authority today? Antinomian Doctrines The current validity of the standing rules of Old Testament morality is either challenged or drastically reduced by many within the Christian church today. We find some who teach that the New Testament Christian has nothing whatsoever to do with the law of the Old Testament. The believer, it is said, is not bound to the law at all. We find others who would put stiff limits on the extent of the Old Testament law's validity. The believer, they say, is bound to follow only a portion of the Old Testament moral code, usually the Ten Commandments. But what does the inductively ascertained practice of the New Testament speakers and writers reveal about this? Do they ignore the law and moral judgments? In ethical decision-making, do they restrict themselves to the Decalogue? Simply put, the answer is no. 
The New Testament speakers and writers themselves are more than willing to put the Old Testament law, Decalogue and Extra Decalogue, into service in critical moral judgments. They do not treat the Old Testament commandments like an expired library card or repealed speed limit. Just the opposite is the case. They make free and unexplained use of the Old Testament law, thereby assuming its moral authority for the New Testament age, extending from Christ to the consummation. Moreover, the use of the Old Testament law in New Testament moral judgments is quite thorough. It is not limited to a single New Testament writer, although that would be enough to establish the law's authority, to a single New Testament book, although again the authority of one infallible document is sufficient, or to one restricted Old Testament source. In contexts of moral application, New Testament citations and allusions are taken from portions of Genesis, Proverbs, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Zechariah. However, even more frequently and consistently, does the New Testament make moral judgments on the basis of the law portion of the Old Testament, citing Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23, Leviticus chapter 11, 18, 19, 20, 21, 24, and 25, Numbers chapters 18 and 30, and Deuteronomy chapters 1, 4, 5, 6, 8, 13, 15, 17, 19, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and 27. The moral use of these Old Testament passages will be found scattered throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st Timothy, Hebrews, James, 1st Peter, 1st John, and Revelation. Therefore, the attempt made by some Christian teachers today to reject or reduce the authority of the Old Testament law will over and over again meet with embarrassment before the text of the New Testament. New Testament Moral Judgments Let us examine some New Testament texts where moral judgments can be found. They illustrate how the Old Testament law was regarded as a valid ethical standard. Specifically, we could see how the current authority of the law was not viewed by them as restricted to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Jesus versus Opponents We can begin for convenience with the discussions of Jesus with his opponents and inquirers. Of course, his greatest opponent was Satan, the tempter who had led Adam astray from disobedience to God. Christ, the second Adam, directly encountered Satan in a 40-day period of temptation in the wilderness. Satan repeatedly tempted Jesus to depart from the course of redemption laid down by the Father, and each time Jesus overcame the temptation by citing the authoritative word of God. For instance, Satan tried to entice Jesus into a test of God's care and fidelity, challenging him to leap from the pinnacle of the temple. Many years earlier, Israel, also in the wilderness, had been lured into testing the care and fidelity of God, Exodus chapter 17, verses 1-7. through as a result, the law of God recorded, quote, You shall not put Jehovah your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. End quote. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Such a law would surely seem conditioned by its historical setting and restricted to its Jewish recipients. Yet in the face of the satanic temptation, Jesus cited this very commandment to thwart his adversary. Quote, Jesus said unto him, Again it stands written, You shall not make a test of the Lord your God. End quote. Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. Clearly the law of God was deemed valid and was not restricted to the Ten Commandments. 
Of course, Jesus also deemed the Ten Commandments to be authoritative, but not uniquely so. When he was asked to judge which commandments should be kept in order to enter eternal life, he made use of a portion of the Decalogue, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 19, and Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. However, at the same time, he included the relevant case law, quote, do not defraud, end quote, Mark chapter 10, verse 19, from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14, and the summary command, love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew chapter 19, verse 19, from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. He used the extra decalogical commands just as authoritatively as the decalogue's own requirements. Indeed, when asked to judge which was the greatest commandment in the entire Old Testament, Jesus did not go to the Ten Commandments at all, but chose rather two laws outside the Decalogue. Love God with all of your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Distilling the Old Testament's moral demand into these two particular extra decalogical laws was apparently already known and discussed in Jesus' day. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. It was a commonplace among the rabbis to distinguish between heavy and light commands in the Old Testament. The heavier laws, being those from which moral commands could be deduced from others, such rabbinic efforts can be traced to the Old Testament itself, where its precepts are summarized in a different number of principles by various writers. 11 by David in Psalm 15, 6 by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 33 verse 15, 3 by Micah in Micah chapter 6 verse 8, one by Amos, Amos chapter 5, verse 4, and by Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk. According to Jesus, the greatest commandments, the first of all, on which the whole law hangs, were the extra decalogical love commandments. Matthew chapter 22, verses 33 and 36, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and 31. The problem with the Pharisees, said the Lord, was precisely that they attended to the minor details of the law, tithing, and have left undone the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. That is the love of God. Luke chapter 11, verse 42. It is important at just this point that we pay attention to Jesus' words, for he does not encourage exclusive attention to the weightier love commandments of the Old Testament law. He says quite precisely, quote, these you ought to have done and not to have left the other undone, end quote. Our obligation to the weightier matters of the law does not cancel our obligation to the minor details. Consequently, the practice of Jesus does not encourage a disregard for the details of God's law as though New Testament moral duty is bound to a small subsection of the Old Testament law. Jesus was often challenged by the traditionalists, who took their authority from outside of the scriptures, about his activities on the Sabbath. In his defense, he would respond, quote, Have you not read in the law? End quote. Matthew chapter 12, verse 5, and John chapter 7, verse 23, citing the Sabbath activity of the priests. Had the law been outmoded by his coming, of course, such a vindication of his behavior would have been baseless. Over and over again, Jesus could show that the traditionalists, whose boast was in the details of the law, were actually violating and twisting the law's demands. For example, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48. On an occasion where Christ's disciples were accused by the Pharisees of violating their traditions, Christ replied that the traditionalists actually transgressed the commandments of God in order to preserve their traditions instead. Matthew chapter 15 verse 3 and verses 6 through 9. 
It is striking to note the specific illustration which Jesus chooses to use among many available ones in this particular moral judgment. He says that while the law of God requires honor for one's parents and death for those who dishonor them, the Pharisees allow a subterfuge by which one can withhold financial aid to his parents. Matthew chapter 15 verses 4 and 5. The Mosaic law which Christ holds up as valid, the standard by which to judge the Pharisaical performance, is the detail of the law, commonly ridiculed today, which requires the death penalty for cursing one's parents. Jesus' Instructions to the Church Another illustration of Jesus' use of the Old Testament's moral standards outside the Decalogue, which can be found when he lays down instructions for the new organization of the people of God. As the Church replaced national Israel in the plan of redemption, it needed its own operating instructions, for instance regarding discipline. In the moral judgment delivered by Christ regarding this manner, he asserted the demand of the Old Testament law, quote, at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. End quote. Matthew chapter 18, verse 16. John chapter 8, verse 17. Based on the law, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. And chapter 19, verse 15. The same Old Testament law of legal evidence promoted by Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. Sexual Ethics the use of the Old Testament law in matters of sexual relations, payment to workers, and revenge towards enemies further substantiates the New Testament dependence on the law's validity. When Paul prohibits marrying an unbeliever, he cites the Old Testament requirement that unlike animals are not to be yoked together. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 from Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 10. Quote, be not unequally yoked together, end quote, is a well-known verse used by many pastors to discourage their young people from marrying outside the faith, and yet many of these same pastors will elsewhere insist that the believer is not under the requirements of the Old Testament law. When Paul was confronted with the wicked situation of incest within the church, his moral judgment on the matter was taken from the Old Testament prohibition, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, based on Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 30. Ask just about any evangelical pastor today whether incest is immoral from a biblical standpoint, and he will surely insist that it is, thereby enlisting the moral standards of the Old Testament, even if he proclaims elsewhere, and inconsistently, that they are repealed and invalid. Or ask him about homosexuality. He may refer to Paul's words in Romans. However, when Paul delivered this apostolic judgment as to the immorality of homosexuality, he simply reiterated the standard of the Old Testament, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 and 32, from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Economic Ethics Turning from sexual to economic ethics, we again find that the New Testament makes unhindered use of the Old Testament commandments in Christian moral judgments. Paul's argument that congregations should pay their pastors is especially enlightening as to the extent of the law's validity. He argues from the case law principle of the Old Testament that, quote, you shall not muzzle an ox as it treads, end quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9, from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, thereby revealing the assumed contemporary authority of the laws outside the Decalogue. An invalid rule would be useless here, but even more striking is Paul's willingness to appeal to the moral principle embodied in one of the ceremonial laws. Pastors should earn their livelihood from the gospel ministry because priests derive their sustenance from the altar. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 through 14, based on such texts as Leviticus chapter 6, verse 16, and verse 26, chapter 7, verse 6, and verse 31, Numbers chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, Numbers chapter 19, verses 8 through 20, and verse 31, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 1. Pastors who wished to teach consistently the invalidity of the Old Testament law might accordingly stop drawing pay from their congregations. In a related economic matter, James delivered a moral judgment regarding the rich who fraudulently withholded their workers' pay, basing his judgment on the Old Testament law, requiring prompt pay for workers. James chapter 5 verse 4, from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 13, and Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 14 and 15. In financial matters, no less than in sexual matters, the New Testament practice was to utilize the Old Testament moral standards of God's law. Interpersonal Relationships The same is true for interpersonal matters. Few Christians will dispute the New Testament standard that we ought not to avenge ourselves, but rather go to the one who wrongs us and show him his fault. Romans chapter 12 verse 19 and Matthew chapter 18 verse 15. And yet this standard is taken over directly from the Old Testament law at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. Another commonly endorsed New Testament ethical judgment, which is in fact based on the Old Testament law, is the injunction to care for one's enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Romans chapter 12, verse 20, rooted in the illustration of Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. As often as Christians condemned private vengeance and hatred of one's enemies, they reaffirm the continuing authority of God's law, even if unwittingly. Conclusion One cannot escape the authoritative use of the Old Testament law in New Testament moral judgments. Upon reflection, one should recognize that such use teaches the full validity of God's law today. Invalid rules might be used in fallacious moral judgments, but not in inspired ones. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.